Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the mystical underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor and Trish McGregor and our tech magician, John Posey. You can go to the mysticalunderground.com where we make regular posts and where you can find out about our books. Our most recent nonfiction book is Phenomena, Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. Trisha's latest novel is Skin Shifters and Rob's latest novel is Tulpas. Our guest today is Andy Paquette. I hope I pronounced that right, Andy. He's the author of Dreams, 20 Years of Psychic Dreams, as well as a research paper for King's College in London on the spiritual content of dreams. In his research, he used a database, a data set comprised of 34 dream journals that contained 12,224 dream records that he produced over a period of 27 years. His intention was to explore the relationship between veridical and spiritual content in dreams. He's also an artist, and as he describes it, quote, my background is all about making pictures, drawings, paintings, and photographs. I like to shoot athletes in part because I was not allowed to participate in sports as a kid, but also because the culture of sports is rich in drama, excitement, inspiration, and even humor. Andy's known primarily for his work as a CG artist in the feature film and video game industry. He's also worked as a comic book artist. Born in 1965 in St. Paul, Minnesota, he has lived in several states within the U.S., primarily New York, Maine, California, Minnesota, and Arizona. Welcome, Andy. Welcome. Hi there. You know, I hate to say it, but I'm going to have to correct a couple of those things you okay. just said. <laughs> That's fine. That's okay. Or in, in a couple of cases, it's just updating information. So um, at this point, I've been recording my dreams for 32 years. Wow. Okay. All right. And the number of dreams I've got in my records now is 13,251. So it's about 1,000 okay. more than oh. the number you use. Um, and I didn't do research on dreams for King's College London. I was researching other subjects while I was there. Name, uh, my primary concern when I was at King's College was um, uh, researching how people become experts or how expertise is developed. Um, it just so happens that one of the papers I published, I happened to uh, have King's College listed because I was affiliated with King's College at the time because that's where I was going for my PhD. Oh, I see. Okay. But, that's but right. I, the thing is, I at the time I had been contemplating doing two PhDs simultaneously, one on you know, the development of expertise and the other on uh, these dreams. But I was talked out of it um, by people who said that uh, people who have two PhDs, uh, how shall I say this? The second PhD actually makes them look worse to other people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason is because they say, well, can't you make up your mind what you're interested in, right? Yeah. And for me, uh, although I was interested in, in the subject I was studying, the development of expertise, I was more interested in dreams, but I, I didn't pick that as a subject because um, 
I felt that the the university I was teaching for, who was paying for my tuition, would not appreciate me getting a, a, a PhD in dream research, <laughs> uh, particularly not parapsychology uh, with parapsychological yeah. implications. Yeah, uh, it reads like a, a PhD thesis. It's, I mean, it's, it's beautifully yes. written. Yeah, oh, you're talking about my book, or well, both. The the book is great. Yeah. Talking about the King's, the one related to King's College, or not related to King's College. Yeah, yeah well, done well. One you sent there. us. <laughs> yeah, and oh, and by the way, the uh, the title of the book you got a little wrong. It's a Dreamer, um, not Dreams. Oh. So, um, and the uh, so anyway, I have other research papers I could have sent you. For some reason, I thought you had them, but now I've got the impression you don't, because uh, I've I've written I think six on the subject of. Um, uh, uh, parapsychology and dreams, and mm-hmm. I wrote them specifically because I wanted to write a sequel to Dreamer, but I wanted to set it up first. So to prepare for it, I realized I had to make a very specific argument in a specific order, but the data I wanted to um, use to support this in my book wasn't in the literature. So the only way to get it in there was oh, to write it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, to, so I did that and, and that last, that article I sent you was the last of those articles. Uh, so now okay. that I published all, all six of them, it was going to be five, but I, I made an extra one in the middle. Um, <laughs> now I can actually do the sequel to Dreamer. So anyway, go on. Oh, great. Okay. Well, well, well we, re- we really re- enjoyed, uh, reading Dreamers. I mean, those first couple chapters are really powerful uh, yeah it's uh tell us about that first dream you uh start with you're, you're actually dead in the dream or you die in yeah the dream. don't tell everybody <laughs> that, that one that one kind of surprised me because you know keep in mind at the time i was 19 years old i was living in amsterdam and um i did not believe that dreams were of any value in any way uh, I didn't think they were interesting particularly, um, although I did have a habit at the time of telling anyone near me what I had dreamed just because, well, I guess I did find them somewhat interesting, but I didn't think they were real. I didn't think they would happen. That just never even occurred to me as a possibility. I was also an atheist uh, uh, for a very long part of my life and didn't believe in supernatural stuff at all. I thought it was all a bunch of baloney. I was kind of a, a snob when when it comes to intellectual things because... Uh, I had always been told when I was a kid that I was a, a very smart person, and I really believed this so much so that um, I got kind of cocky about it. And I thought part of being smart was believing all the things that the smart people believe in. And one of those <laughs> things is that parapsychology was a bunch of baloney. Uh-huh. Um, so one thing I found out later, though, is that being an honest person can sometimes substitute for uh, intelligence and come uh, allow a person to come to more correct conclusions. So... Um, I have, shall we say, less respect for the idea of smartness now than I, than I used to have, um, and uh, quite a bit more humility, I hope. In any event, so that's who I was at the time, and uh, and I was, I had this little apartment on uh, Faiselstraat uh, in Amsterdam, uh, stayed there by myself, had a cot that cost me, must have been 50 guilders, which is like $10. There were mosquitoes in that place. It was horrible. My girlfriend had been with me uh, the first month, and then she went back to New York, and uh, I was stuck there just painting. So it was kind of a miserable and lonely uh, uh, couple of months uh, uh, of my life. Anyway, so this this one night, I, I went to sleep, and I had this dream that was really super vivid. It was so vivid, I thought it was absolutely real and happening, right? 
So in the dream, I was in a different part of the city that I, I had been to before, but only rarely. Um, and I was, I was walking down the street when all of a sudden these two people came up from behind me. Um, and one of them put his arm around my neck and really grabbed it pretty strongly. And the two of these guys, and the other guy was on my right, and he, uh, he was uh, make, basically making it impossible for me to cross the street. I could see people on the street around me, but for some reason I wasn't able to like say to them something bad was happening. Um, so these guys made it clear they wanted to take my money, and they ushered me into this alley up on the left and uh, brought me in there. And I thought, oh my gosh, these guys, these guys are really going to do this. I'm getting mugged for real. And, um, and the guy, this one guy pulled out a gun at that point and I was like, oh boy, oh boy, this is bad. And I got the idea that these guys had killed before and that I was, you know, maybe going to be next. So I kind of sank to my knees there cause I was, I was kind of afraid. And, um, anyway, so I, I saw this guy's, this guy's gun was really close to my face and I realized I could actually grab it cause he'd stopped for just a second to talk to the other guy. And, um, and so I decided to try to grab the gun from him. So I reached up really carefully. And as soon as I touched the gun, he saw me do it. And he, was, he, he gave me this look like, boy, that was kind of a dumb idea, wasn't it? And he, and he shot me. He shot me in the neck. And the, the pain of getting shot, it was really interesting. I'd, I'd never, I've never, to my knowledge anyway, been shot in the neck. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I don't know how I would have known what to expect it would feel like, but it had it had some very very specific sensations associated with it. It wasn't just searing pain. It was also I could feel my throat ripped open. I could feel my skin kind of flapping oh. against blood as it was trying to coagulate, but it was flowing too fast to do it. And I felt warmth spread over my chest as my blood hmm. flowed over my chest. Um, and I felt like a, a, a flap of skin very distinctly kind of flap over and get stuck to the blood and. And it was, and I could feel like the edge of the skin as the, the wind uh, in the environment made contact with it. All of these sensations were really crisp and clear and detailed and very vivid and realistic and excruciating. I'll add that as well. Um, but at the same time, I also started feeling very lightheaded and I realized I was, I was going to die uh, right there in that alley. And I could see people walking by at the mouth of the alley, just, you know, 15, 20 feet away. And, um, and I wanted to go there to get help. I, it's like I would, had forgotten about these two, these two muggers already. And um, I, I started trying to get there, but I, I collapsed onto the ground. And I was growing more and more faint in the head as I went um, until finally I, I just collapsed completely and died. And, I, and my spirit God. left my body. And I experienced all this. It was all continuous. And, and you know, at the point where I collapsed, I, I saw the, the two mugger guys. They... They walked up to my body and they dragged it back so that people walking by wouldn't see it. Jeez. Um, and and I was thinking, holy cow, I, I've died. This is what it's like to die. This is really kind of amazing. And, <laughs> um, and then I thought of uh, my girlfriend, Kitty, uh, and I was like, well, well shucks, I, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her. And, you know, she, she's I don't even know how she's going to find out that this has happened. Right. This is horrible. And while I was thinking about that, um, I, I found myself in her mother's apartment, which is where she was staying in New York. And uh, she was just sitting there at the table drinking tea. And I was like kind of up near the ceiling looking down on her, trying to get her attention. And she wasn't paying any attention at all to me. She, she had no idea I was there. And I, and I wanted her to know I was dead. But 
I couldn't do it. So anyway, I, I was looking at the ceiling in her mom's place, and suddenly I realized there's this color on the ceiling that I, I, I recognized from my apartment in Amsterdam. Uh, it was this kind of pink uh, light from a, a Budweiser sign that they had right outside my window because there's a, uh, not a liquor store, but a, uh, they call it a, a tabac uh, where they sell uh, uh, cigarettes, but they also sold beer, I guess. Um, and they were just below me. Oh, I'm sorry. It wasn't the Budweiser sign. It was a, a Marlboro sign. That's what it was. Anyway, so let my eyes drift down from the ceiling and then I saw the sign and I was like, oh, this is my apartment in Amsterdam. And and then I realized I was sitting up in bed and my eyes were wide open and had been wide open the whole time. And I was absolutely convinced that I was dead. OK. And yet here oh, I was geez. with my eyes open in in this cot of mine uh, on my knees looking around the room. And I, and I so I had been awake or at least I had been sitting up with my eyes open uh, at the very least from the moment I was looking at the ceiling and what I thought God. was my mother's apartment. So. Um, so anyway, I thought, oh, gosh, I'm kind of grateful that I'm actually alive here. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of a nice feeling. So I actually uh, uh, got out of bed and got dressed and grabbed some coins from uh, my table and uh, went out at 2 o'clock in the morning, I think it was, maybe 3 o'clock in the morning, and um, went over to this, uh, this phone booth that was, uh, I don't know, maybe half a mile or a mile away from my apartment and uh, and called Kitty in this is my girlfriend's name in uh, New York, and I said, you know, I just had this crazy dream where I died and everything, and and I this is just really getting to me out here living in Amsterdam by myself. So I'm coming back, and she was like, okay, and um, so anyway, uh, so for the next two weeks, I was uh, kind of uh, scrambling to get rid of all the things I couldn't put on an airplane with me. Uh, which, by the way, is a lot uh, less than, or a lot more than would be the case now, uh, thanks to 9-11 and all that. But yeah. uh, in the event, one of the things I had to do was clear out my bank account. Okay, so I went to my bank, which was the Ferenichte, uh, actually, I forgot the rest of the name of that place. It was VS Spurwagen, I think. Anyway, I, I went over there and I cleared out my account. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was a couple thousand dollars. And um, and then from there, I had to go pick up my uh, plane ticket uh, to New York. And that meant walking over to the travel agency, which I had never been to before. It was a, I, I hadn't been to that place before. And I got the ticket. So at that moment, I had this plane ticket in my pocket that had cost, I think, $1,000 or so. And I had a couple thousand dollars in cash. Um, and I walked out of that place. And at that moment, I realized I was on the street in my dream. Okay. Now, how, how how much how much time had elapsed since the dream? It was about two weeks or so. Uh huh. Okay. Um, so uh, anyway, so I, I was like, this is funny. This is it's about the same time of day because it was like ten o'clock in the morning or something, and that was what it was in the dream. And the street sure looks the same, and it is the same street, and the, but the people on the street look like they were where they were supposed to be <laughs> relative to the dream. And I was thinking. But that's ridiculous. That's just silly uh, uh, to think that my dream could have anything at all to do with this, right? And then, it, kind of like at that moment, this big black arm came out from behind me and went oh, around. God. And then there was this other big black guy. These guys, I, I don't know if they were, they weren't Dutch. They were from some African country, I think, because of their accents. Um, but they, uh, 
these two guys came from behind me. One of them put his arm around my neck um, in uh, where my neck was like in the crook of his elbow. And uh, the other guy was on my right flanking me so that I couldn't run into the street. And they were asking me, how much money did I have on them? Was it in American dollars? This kind of stuff, right? Because they wanted mm. my money. And I was like, holy cow, this is really similar to that dream. This is like <laughs> really similar to that dream. Um, and I thought, you know, in the, it's kind of stupid to think that a dream could, could predict the future. I, I really thought it was impossible. But I thought in this particular case, coincidentally, there were too many things stacking up to make me feel comfortable going along with these two guys, right? Um, so how about, how about the alley? Was that there too? Well, that was the other thing. Is I uh, thank you for mentioning that. I forgot about that. Um, the other thing is, I was thinking I'm totally safe here because there's no alley on this street, right? Um, now the thing is, I hadn't been on that street for a couple months, so the last time I'd seen it, there was no alley. But it turns out um, that there, I, 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 as we walked, I saw this pile of scaffolding and an alley exactly where it was in my dream. So apparently, what had happened is that when I'd been there previously. Um, the alley had been blocked by all the scaffolding because they were doing construction in that area. Um, but in the in the interim, the scaffolding had been taken down, exposing the alley. So, so anyway, when I saw that, that was when my heart sank, and I was like, "Okay, I've got to do something." Uh, very glad you pointed that out because I'd completely forgotten about that. <laughs> and <laughs> but can 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 I ask a question real quick? Because yeah. uh, so you identified this, you you. You seem to recognize this as your dream. You didn't. You didn't have that deja vu feeling or anything. It was just no. This well, yeah, was a dream. I mean, okay. That, that's that's how I that's how I recognized it because when I walked out on the street and the people were arranged, they were the way they were, and the sun was the way it was, and everything. Huh. It was just like this is very much like that dream. Um, so anyway, uh, but I, I I had a tendency at that time in my life to dismiss these things. So so that's what I was trying hard to do. But when I saw that alley where I was certain there wasn't an alley there. Um, that was what made me feel like I really had to do something. So I was much smaller than these guys, and I'm still much smaller than those guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I knew I couldn't overpower them physically, but I thought it was possible to confuse them uh, enough that they might relax their grip. Okay, or the, the, the guy behind me would relax his grip on me. So um, they'd been talking to me in Dutch with a bad accent, and uh, with the assumption that I was... No, no, no. They've been speaking to me in English with a bad accent, which made me think that they were used to speaking Dutch with uh, their mm -hmm. whatever it was accent. So anyway, I thought if I respond to them in Dutch um, and I say something uh, indicating that I that I actually am Dutch, not American, don't have American dollars, that they would uh, that, that it might confuse them enough that they would actually hesitate. And so that's mm -hmm. what I did. And of course, I, my Dutch is horrible, but I I, I said. Uh, Ik ben Amsterdamer, ik niet ben Amerikaner, or something like that. It was horrible Dutch. I absolutely slaughtered it. But, but it did the trick because they suddenly huh. kind of slowed down, stopped, and the guy did loosen his hold on my neck. And I was able to slip out and run off across the street saying, uh, uh, police, police, help, help. And I pointed <laughs> to guys. And, uh, and they ran. They ran as fast as they could. They just dashed. Uh, and they, they disappeared pretty quick. But... Uh, even so, I, I got into the store and I was like, uh, said to the store owner, I said, call the police. Look, those two guys right there. They have to, they, those guys tried to mug me. And um, anyway, they killed the me in a like, dream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. So anyway, so the thing is, is so that all happened. And uh, funny thing is, is it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the dream in the first place, because um, it was the dream that inspired me to decide that I wanted to leave and come back to America, um, which <laughs> resulted in me emptying the bank account and having all that money on me and then going and getting the, the ticket um, that put me on that street. And my guess is these two guys followed me from the bank. That's what I think. Uh, uh, um, that, that they saw me making a large cash withdrawal in dollars and, uh, and just followed me. And they were probably hanging around outside the, the travel agency. So, um, And that was back when a plane ticket like that was actually worth something, even to somebody who had stolen it from yeah. someone. Um, so the thing is, though, as you might be curious, um, you know, I, I think it was maybe a day or two later, a couple days later, something like that. Um, I got on the plane, flew back to New York, and Kitty met me, and we were in the cab going back to uh, her place. She'd gotten an apartment for us in uh, Queens, and uh, and I said, you know, Kitty, uh, it's kind of funny, but uh, remember that dream I told you about? Well, this <laughs> this thing happened with these two guys uh, just a couple days ago, and, it was, and, and she was like, well, CC, your dream came true, and I was like, no, 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 no it's just a coincidence, so... Um, so it's like that that didn't convince me. And the funny thing is, is that there were quite a few other things that had happened in my life before that that didn't convince me either. And one thing that I, I want to say, just for your audience's sake, that they might uh, find this interesting. But um, when I'm talking to skeptics or communicating with them online or whatever, uh, one thing I, I run into fairly often is that they'll say, well, if this happened to me it would convince me, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just hard to believe you, okay? Because I don't have your the benefit of your experience. And it's hard for you to just convey it to me. I have, it has to, I have to actually see this. And I can tell you for a fact that I had many of those exact same things happen to me and they did not convince me because I was so prejudiced against the idea that anything like this is possible. So um, I've had What did convince you? <laughs> Um, it was my dream journal that convinced me. Uh -huh. uh, and I didn't even do that because I thought they were convincing. I did that because I wanted to prove Kitty wrong because she kept telling me that my <laughs> dreams were coming true. And um, and I got sick and tired of it. I was like, I, I just thought <laughs> she was superstitious and, you know, she's Christian. So I figured maybe that was part of it that, you know, maybe there's some kind of religious mumbo jumbo that they teach to people in Bible school or whatever that this kind of stuff is possible. And they were just a bunch of, you know, uh, 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 retarded people, I guess, is kind of my impression. <laughs> yeah. Pardon but, me. Uh, Andy, your precognition dream experience or experiences also bled over into your waking life. I mean, one night you and Kitty were playing backgammon, yeah, this is a great story. and you had a premonition uh, oh, about your roles. Let me let me stop you right there. I because oh. I wouldn't call that a premonition. It was a little different from that. No, it's not the first time that kind of thing happened. Uh, the only reason I wrote about that in the book, apart from the fact it's interesting, is because Kitty is a witness. It happened with right in front of her eyes, and, mm -hmm. and I have contact with her. The other occasion when it happened first, uh, I was not able to track down the guy that was the witness to it, but it was actually a much more spectacular uh, incident in some ways. Oh, you, um, it happened twice to you, the, the same? It was similar, it, it wasn't the same. Um, uh, actually, in some ways, the one with Kitty is better, but I'll tell you this anyway, because this, yeah, this, oh. this is one of those things that did not convince me of anything, okay? And you tell me how many people would allow themselves to not be convinced by this. So at the time, I was maybe 
12 years old. Um, and at the time, um, I worked at a comic book store in San Jose, and I uh, had gotten into the habit of playing backgammon with some of the other guys who worked at the store. So when things were slow, we'd pull out the backgammon board and play backgammon. And I had a reputation for being phenomenally lucky at back backgammon, okay? Um, and as a result, I didn't really need to employ any strategy at all. I just would win the games fairly often, right? And uh, this used to really annoy this one guy named Greg that I played with. Um, he was this very muscular, big kid from my perspective. He was probably 18 years old, but he was a, he was a weightlifter, big guy. And, um, and this one day, I got this kind of impish notion that I was going to predict all the roles in the game, mine and his. But more than that, I was going to decide beforehand what would be the best role for me and the worst role for him. And I would say it out loud before it happened, okay? <laughs> so, so because I had this reputation for being lucky, I figured kind of in a joking way I was going to do this, right? So I said to Greg, I said, Greg, you know what? Not only am I going to clobber you, but I'm going to predict all the roles. And I'm going to decide what I'm going to get and what you're going to get. I'm going to decide the best role for me, and I'm going to get it, and the worst role for you, and you're going to get that, no matter what it is, okay? Well, I'll tell you, it was like, it kept happening. I'd, I'd say what the role was, and I'd get it, and I'd, and I'd look at the board, and I'd figure what was the worst possible thing he could get, and he'd get it. And it was going on and on and on, and he was like, how are you doing this? And he was really mad. He was getting super, super mad. And at one point, I don't know if you know backgammon, but for any of your listeners yeah, who do backgammon, I, I play. Okay. Towards the end of the game, I had all but two of his pieces on the bar. You tell me how impossible that is. At that <laughs> point, I was basically telling him, you're going to roll double sixes because I had the six bar blocked, right? And he'd get double sixes. <laughs> and then, since I'd had to move one of those pieces off and it was no longer blocked, but my five was blocked, I'd say, now you're going to get double fives. And he'd get double fives and he'd still <laughs> block. He got so mad, and there are all two pieces in play at that point. <laughs> he picked up the board and threw it into the window of the store. It was a plate glass <laughs> window, and all the it was a you know strong window, so it didn't break anything. But everything just went bouncing all over the place. He was really really mad. Um, but I estimate that that was around fifty rolls or fifty turns rather worth of rolls um, that I predicted in advance. And I remember after that game walking to the Togo sandwich shop afterward thinking, wow, that was an amazing coincidence. Um, and and I, that's exactly how I looked at it for you know a long, long time. It didn't occur to me that maybe there was some kind of other agency involved. Um, so now I'll, I'll give you the other example that you actually wanted to talk about, and I apologize for the <laughs> okay. No, that was a good one. Yeah. Um, but uh, what happened is I was uh, playing backgammon with uh, Kitty, who at that point is my wife, just so you guys know. Um, I've only dated one person in my life and I've only married one person and I'm still married to her. So her name's Kitty. So if I say girlfriend, okay. I'm talking about Kitty. And if I say wife, I'm talking about Kitty. Um, and I had a dream about that too, but that, that may come up later. <laughs> in any event, um, so I was playing backgammon with her and as has happened to me when I'm playing games, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to say, but uh, sometimes I'll get a feeling about what's going to happen. And it usually occurs when I'm very uh, focused on winning the game. It's not something I can manufacture. It's something that has to be genuine. It's like, I can't tell you to love some person who lives next door to you or something, some stranger. You, you know, that, that has to come from within. 
And it's the same thing. So when I'm playing games, it's like sometimes I get this kind of strange focus where all of a sudden I want something and then it will actually happen. Okay. And that thing I want might be a dice roll or it might be uh, I want to know what the other player has in their hand, if it's cards or uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I used to drive my daughter crazy when we were playing Pokemon because I'd always know her cards. <laughs> uh, but it only worked if I was really interested in the game. If I wasn't interested, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work at all. Um, but this thing, when I was playing backgammon with Kitty, was a little different. It was almost like somebody was talking to me. And it was the idea was if I were to make a very specific prediction, it would happen. But if I didn't make that prediction, it would not happen. Okay. Hmm. And the specific prediction was that we were going to roll matching descending doubles from sixes to ones. And one thing I want to point out here, because I think this is very important and relevant to the way dream communications work, is that the way I just described that role is the way it came to me in this, you call it premonition, although I think that's not exactly what's going on. But um, the idea of match, rolling matching descending uh, doubles from sixes to ones, that's about as as concise a description of that sequence of numbers as you can possibly uh, come up with. So from the point of view of poetry, that was a very, very concise description of what was going to occur. Because if I actually listed the numbers, they would take a lot longer. There are other ways to do it. In yeah, so, so if uh, for people who aren't familiar with backgammon, it's not just two dice, it's two dice twice. You each have two dice. So it's four dice that you're throwing yes. all six, then all fives, then all fours, all the God, way down. Except you didn't yeah. make it all the way down. Well, let's, let's yeah, so, so, <laughs> so I decided what the heck I'll just go ahead and say this. I mean, I thought it was ridiculous, but you know, I, the, the, this feeling that I had to say it was very strong. It was almost like this, like, you know, like you have an urgent need to go to the bathroom. You just can't help yourself. You have to run to the bathroom. That's kind of how it felt. And um, so I was like, okay, Kitty, you know, I just had this feeling if I say this, it's going to happen. So we're going to now roll matching descending doubles from sixes to, to ones. And she went ahead and rolled a pair of sixes. So keep in mind, by the way, this is also, again, not me predicting my rolls only. It's hers. Right, right, yeah. uh, so she's got her hand on. And by the way, the way people roll dice in, in backgammon, you don't have them in your hands. You have them in a tumbler that you shake. Yeah. So uh, that removes two levels of control for me there. Anyway, so she rolls double sixes. I rolled sixes, fives, fives, fours, fours, threes, threes. And it was freaking me out. We got to the twos. And at that moment, uh, um, the sheer mathematical impossibility of what I just seen uh, overwhelmed me and I, it scared me actually. So I said, uh, you know what, Kitty, we're not going to get the ones. And then she did not roll ones. And that was the end uh. of it. But, but that was an exact 20 roll sequence. God. And the, the odds of that happening at all are one in, it was four something quadrillion to, to <laughs> one. Um, so I could, it's more likely that I would win the lottery like, several times in a row then that this would happen um so it was it was pretty impressive to me um, do you think this was telekinesis um i'm not sure what it was but it if yeah okay you want me to analyze it I'll, uh, here's here's, <laughs> here's my feeling um i think some form of telekinesis had to be involved to control the dice rolls however i can't say that it was me that was doing it okay mm. because it felt like Somebody else was giving me the suggestion that this would happen if uh, uh -huh. I confidently made this assertion, right? 
Um, and then when I lost my confidence, the, then the whole thing went away. But it, it felt almost like somebody else was doing it. Kind of like if there was a ghost in the room yeah, that, that wanted to make its presence known, you know, this right. is how it happened. Um, so I don't, re I, I feel kind of uncomfortable saying I caused it to happen. Right. Although I was obviously involved. Um, it, it, it's like the person who designs the car you drive isn't driving the car and you didn't design the car, but you're both involved in the process. Uh -huh. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I don't feel like I instigated that. It just, it, hmm. it was more like it was suggested to me and I said, okay, sure, I'll go along with it. And then it happened. Um, and that's, that's one thing that I, I that is uh, sort of the, a dividing line between two different types of dreams that I call precognitive or prophetic. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I call something precognitive, what that means is that I'm not aware of, of um, how shall I say this, any independent agent or personality yeah. guiding the dream. It, it feels more like I'm directly experiencing it myself. Mm -hmm. um, if, I, if it's prophetic, it's, it's like there's, there's like it's some other entity in the dream that's showing me something and, and mm. telling me that it's going to happen in the future or indicating it somehow. But so, you don't see this or hear this uh, entity directly, do you? No. And, it, you know, it's, there's also another thing. I, don't, I didn't write about this in my book, and I don't really talk about it that often. Of course, the more often I tell people I don't talk about it often, I'm going <laughs> to stop saying that. But um, <laughs> it's uh, something I call my lie detector, okay? And it's, it's a little bit more involved than that, but it's, I, I have a sense sometimes, uh, it's not all the time, but uh, whether something I am saying is true and also whether something somebody else is saying is true, but, but it goes way beyond true and false. Um, and, but for instance, because of this, I find it very difficult to make jokes that involve uh, wild exaggerations, okay? Uh -uh. Be because my lie detector will go off. And they're saying that's not a that's not a true premise for your joke. Um, <laughs> it, it's just it's just so annoying that I I've just kind of avoided making those kinds of jokes. Um, any any kind of joke that involves saying something that's false. Um, on the other hand, I'm perfectly free to use metaphors that can be pretty wild and and, and uh, hilarious. So I'll do I'll make those kinds of jokes instead. <laughs> um, but it also uh, it's it's like sometimes I'll say something and I'll be mistaken. Um, not not through evil intent or anything like that. It's it's just that I've like forgotten the detail or I've been too hasty in answering. So that I'll, I'll get like this little ping in the back of my mind that'll say, "Hey, wait a minute! You better check your facts on that one because uh, you're you're not right." And um, and so like for instance, I was at a comic book store recently and I I said to the guy I had 16 boxes of uh, newsstand comics right now. And that my lie detector went off, and it was like, no, 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 you don't. <laughs> count, count those boxes up again. And uh, huh. it, it turns out I have 12. Um, but I was <laughs> adding in four other boxes I have of comics that predate the, the newsstand era, or the directed era, mm -hmm. when it was a meaningful difference. So I was kind of lumping those in. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have, because for collection purposes, it, it those those really shouldn't count. So, so it'll it'll crop up in situations like that it it also is cropping up quite a lot right now in uh, the politics that are going on which i'm not going to get into i was just going to ask you about that <laughs> yeah well it's let's just say there's a certain title that's been given to a certain person and my lie detector won't let me do it um, <laughs> so it, it it's just like nope not true um so anyway but I, I'm going to leave that there because it's still a very uh, raw issue for a lot of people and i don't yeah. want to get everyone upset but 
Um, but the thing is, is that uh, I do get these feelings sometimes. And I, I think that you could call it a conscience also. I mean, I think that it might be what in you know uh, older days would have been called your conscience. Uh, <clears throat> that just warn you of things or, or, or tell you things. Cause I'll, you know, I'll also get warnings. Like maybe, maybe, you know, doing a certain thing would be a bad idea or doing another thing would be a good idea. Um, but it's only like in quiet moments or like intense moments of concentration or when I'm not really thinking about anything in particular, when this thing will crop up or like when I say something that's literally incorrect, I, it'll, it'll just pop up in my mind as a reminder. Um, and and then I'll check into it and I'll I'll see that it's right. Um, and I don't even know why I'm telling you this. Uh, <laughs> why why was I telling you this? You asked me a question that that uh, made me think of it. You asked me something about um, oh, if it was telekinesis, and then you oh, right, right, right. Yeah. So yes, I do, but I I don't know if I would under I would use that term in the way it's understood uh -huh. because the way most people think of con uh, telekinesis, it's um, you know, Stephen King's theory, and, and so it happens. Um, well, let's, let's hope it wasn't telekinesis when you had that uh, precognitive dream about a commercial plane crashing. Oh well, I had a couple of those, and you know, the funny thing is, those were pretty powerful. And you know what? I have to admit something here. Uh, my lie detector is just going off. Um, <laughs> when I when I made the dream journal to convince my wife that she was out of her mind, uh, thinking that my dreams were really coming true. At that time, I actually was beginning to suspect that it was possible she was right, okay? And it was because of a couple of those plane crash dreams. The, the one that was probably the most vivid, well, they were both, actually, these were pretty vivid dreams for the most part, but um, I'll mention the Ramstein air show disaster mm -hmm. first. I, yeah. I think that happened in the late 80s, like 88, something like that. Um, oh, August 14th, you had the dream. Yeah, okay, so anyway, the... What it was is in the dream, this guy, there's this guy that I interpret to be like a taxi cab driver or something. And he um, he's there and he says, come with me. I want to show you something. And we go up into the air. And by the way, if you want to see drawings of my dreams, you just go onto my uh, my dream journal pages on my website. And you can see oh, wow. What, um, so if one of you guys is curious, it's packart.com, P-A-Q-R-T.com. Okay. And just uh, uh, navigate your way to drawings and then to uh, dream journals. Um, but anyway, um, so he says, I want to show you something. So we're up in the sky and, uh, he points out some jets that are flying by these really fancy looking jets. And, uh, he says, now look at this, watch what happens here. And, uh, he's pointing to these two jets and as he points to them, I see their wingtips just barely touch. They're flying very close together and the wingtips just glance against each other. As soon as it happens. It, it has a super violent reaction where the planes just spin out of control, the wings explode, the planes explode, and they're spinning. And I suddenly I see that one plane is spinning straight towards the ground with flames and debris everywhere filling the air. And there are people down there filling all these uh, spectator stands, you know, like bleachers. Mm. There are hundreds of people there, and this plane um, just flies straight into them. And I see body parts, you know, being spontaneously you know, arms and legs flying in the air and burning flesh. It was disgusting. And I could feel the heat because it was like I was right next to this airplane as it as it blew up and flew into this crowd of all these people. And I thought that hundreds of people had to have been killed in that. Um, anyway, so I woke up from that dream and I was thinking, well, shucks, that was that was pretty horrifying. And um, and I could I could still feel the heat. It was like 
I don't know if you guys have ever been to the American Southwest on a really hot day, but yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, so when you're like in Furnace Creek, uh, California, which is in Death Valley or uh, Phoenix or someplace like that on a hot day, it you can feel that like the hair on your skin is right. like crackling and sizzling, right? And that's the feeling I had for like a couple weeks after that dream. I, it was like I all day long I could feel the heat from the plane, and mm. it really bugged me. So of course I I told Kitty about it as soon as I woke up. I always did. And I mentioned it a few more times over the next couple of weeks. And then one day I'm, uh, I'm drawing at the, my drawing table there and uh, I have the TV on in the corner of the room and they had this breaking news report and they showed video footage of, of exactly what had happened in my dream happening for real in Ramstein, Germany. They had an okay. air show where they had these three Italian uh, jets uh, were performing this, um, this particular maneuver and two of the jets... Their wingtips just barely touched each other. They they uh, essentially uh, uh, lost control, uh, blew up, and one of them uh, flew into the spectators and killed all these people. Um, but the but the video of it was like exactly my dream. Hmm. Um, so I think that was very interesting. Now the thing is, um, you could call that a precognitive dream, and I did myself for a long time until I learned to see the difference. But now I look at it as a prophetic dream. And the reason is because there was somebody in the dream who said, come with me, I want to show you something. Oh, that's and, interesting. And then he, he showed it to me. Oh. Uh, because, And, you know, just to give you an example of, of uh, how it can be different from that, um, uh, I had five dreams about the World Trade uh, Center disaster in uh, uh, 2001, okay? So, um, but all of those dreams were in the same, I guess, two to three month period of uh, late eight, 1989, uh, early 1990. So these dreams predate the event by 11 uh, Okay. Um, now, the first one was symbolic, and I would call it prophetic. Okay. And the second one was precognitive. And because, the, why? Because nobody said, come along, I want to show you something. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll describe it to you, and you'll understand. Okay. Um, and then the following three were... Actually, neither. Um, they were they they were a different order altogether, and I'll explain those to you. Also, those are more like communications. So, so the first one, I was down in downtown Manhattan, and this is where I lived at the time. I lived very close to the World Trade Center, and um, and the World Trade Center was down, and there were other buildings that had fallen. There was just rubble everywhere, and I understood that um, there were two events almost simultaneous, one right after the other, that caused this to happen. Um, and, um, I could hear like the echo of a jet engine in the air. Um, and I, I knew that there were all these people who had just died suddenly in this event that caused all these, these buildings to fall. And I, I was kind of very careful with the way I was walking around the area because I felt like I didn't want to disturb their spirits. Right. Hmm. Um, which is kind of a funny thought to have because while I'm awake, I would not be thinking that way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so anyway, um, so then I saw what looked like this skeleton with a flaming sword, and he uh, he he slashed at me with a sword and cut me in half. And to my surprise, I was still alive. And he said, "That's because I I cut your astral body with my sword." Now I need you to know that if you stay here, if you continue to live in Manhattan, you will die in the exact same event wow. that killed all these other people. If, and then he looked over to New Jersey as if that would be safe. He looked across the river to New Jersey. Huh. 
Um, and and then I woke up, and I that was a terrifying dream to me because it, it felt like he had just about killed me, but then I was alive. And then I realized he wasn't really a skeleton. He didn't have a flaming sword. He was just getting my attention this way, right? Mm. Um, so, okay, so that's symbolic. And you might say, well, mm. that's got nothing to do with this. You're just being a, you know, a crazy guy talking about this. Um, but then the next dream was literal, okay? And in this one, I knew as soon as the dream started that it concerned the exact same event that the skeleton dream concerned, okay? Mm. And that's important because that links the two dreams. That means everything from that dream had to match everything from the new dream. Right. Okay? So kind of like the, the sequence of numbers in my backgammon roll, uh, <laughs> predicting one dice is, is interesting. Predicting two is more interesting, right? Mm -hmm. okay? And since there were a few details of the skeleton dream, the rubble, the specific buildings that were down, and the sound of the, the echo of the, of the plane engine in the air, those three things, and also the fact that the event happened suddenly, right. all of those things had to be true of the, the next dream. So in the next dream, I was in downtown Manhattan, and I saw that uh, uh, there was damage everywhere. There was all this like rubble all over the streets, and um, I didn't understand why it was there. I thought it was from an earthquake, because it looked like an earthquake had happened. But I was told by somebody in the dream no, no, this wasn't an earthquake. This was caused by bad people who had hostages, okay? Hmm. And I was like, how do bad people with hostages cause rubble to be in the streets of Manhattan? <laughs> I, I just, I, it was just inconceivable to me. And on top of that, it looked like, for some reason, it felt like it was winter, and yet everybody was dressed in summer clothes. So I was looking at people wearing, you know, short sleeve shirts and shorts and stuff, but, um, but for some reason, it made me think of winter, and I didn't really understand that. Um, and then all of a sudden, all these people looked up at, at, uh, at uh, one of these uh, the skyscrapers and said, look, run, run. And it was, you know, the world. And they all started running. And all of a sudden, it was like this tidal wave of debris was just pouring into the, the area I was in. And everybody was running, but they weren't fast enough. A lot of them got caught up in it and got just totally overwhelmed by all this stuff. You know, the dream, I thought it was actually a tidal wave. But one thing interesting is if you look at aerial photographs of the building collapses, it looks exactly like a tidal wave. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, the, again, this is one of the things about literal dreams that bother me is that I can see it exactly the way it looks and not understand what it is. Uh -huh. Whereas a symbolic dream, it's not the way it actually looks, but I understand it better. Um, so anyway, so, so that was, that had other, other details, but those are, those are the main ones. Oh, and that was the other thing. I also understood that this had happened twice, that, that, uh, there were two events, one right after the other that, hmm. that uh, resulted in this. Um, I had mistakenly attributed that to the skeleton room, but it was actually this dream that had that. Anyway. Um, so, so did you the, take the skeleton's advice? <laughs> yeah, I did. I moved to Weehawken, New Jersey. Uh -huh. So anyway, um, so the third dream I was just in New Jersey and I was congratulating myself for having moved because the disaster had happened and I was alive and I was thankful for that. So that was no big deal. The fourth one I, involved the uh, the amazing Kreskin of all people. You know who that is, right? Yeah, right. right. And he was telling me, he was saying that dr those dreams you had, the skeleton dream, the other one where you, you, you saw like the, the avalanche of the building and everything, um, and this other one uh, where you were grateful that you'd survived. All three of those dreams are very important. I need you to tell me details of those dreams. Mm -hmm. And as I was trying to think of details of those dreams, 
I noticed two billiard balls fall on the floor. The first ball that fell was a nine ball, and the second was the 11 ball. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so what happens there is I've got somebody in the dream referring to previous dreams, linking all of those dreams together as related, asking me to tell him more. And as I try to tell him more, the nine and 11 balls fall down. Jeez. Okay. Um, mm. So again, it's linking that idea, those two numbers in that order with all of those other dreams. Um, and the fifth one, I hate to say it to you right now, but I actually forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have You're to, allowed to forget some of them. Was that was that one the one that was closer to the event, or was that still eleven years away? Um, I think I had five that were all eleven years away, but okay. but within two weeks of the event, uh, something happened while I was awake, um, and that was that I was at uh, Legoland with uh, my daughter Nina and my wife, and I had a splitting migraine headache. It was horrible. I could I you know the only reason I was willing to do it is because it was my daughter's birthday and I promised that we take her to Legoland. So, um, but I was in agony the whole, you know, most of the day and we were walking around looking at all these displays when we got to the New York city display and I realized they didn't have the world trade center. And I was like, why don't they have the world trade center? And then it hit me. My dream was going to come true. I don't know why I took it as a sign for that, but I did. Uh -huh. I, I said, you know, Kitty, I think that dream of mine is going to come true. You know, the one, and I, you know, I'm talking about the ones that I just mentioned to you now. Mm -hmm. And um, and at that moment, my headache disappeared. It just vanished wow. it, it, hmm. as soon as I said that. Um, hmm. And my daughter's birthday is August 20. Uh, I always forget. Is it 25th or 26th? Well, it's one of those two days. So it was only uh, two or three weeks away from the, the Trade Center actually falling. Hmm. So I said, you know, that 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 dream is going to happen and it's going to happen soon. And it did. Uh, so yeah. there's that. But. The thing I was getting at there, though, is that the first dream, the, the way that skeleton was communicating to me, it was, it was very symbolic, okay? Because he wasn't really a skeleton. He didn't really... Right. Um, he was just trying to tell me, look, I cut your astral body, meaning you have an astral body, meaning this isn't really happening. This is just, I'm, I'm showing you something, uh -huh. giving you a warning. He's giving me a warning. Um, the second one was quite literal. I thought it was an earthquake, but I was told it wasn't an earthquake. This is kind of what happens when I'm seeing it exactly as it is, um, because I can only go by what I see, not what I know. But right. luckily, some of the people in the dream were actually talking about it. And from them, I realized that uh, uh, it, was, it was different from what it looked. And the thing about it looking like winter, that's because if you look at photographs of people after the buildings fell... They're, they look like they're covered. It did with look snow. like winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah because everything true. was covered with ash. So all of my observations were correct. Uh, I just didn't understand them. And then in the the next three dreams, it was basically me talking about those dreams with somebody else in the dream. So, uh, or in the first one, it was just my own thoughts. The second one, I was talking with Prescott, and the third mm -hmm. one, which is slipping my mind at the moment, uh, was another one kind of like that. So, um, I so I split those up into precognitive. Um, prophetic and more like a communication with the spirit. Can, uh, let me can I throw let me throw ahead, something Tom. in just real quick because something that and I've I, I've actually got a couple of other questions but this this, this, <laughs> this, this is this 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 one supersedes those at the moment because uh, I've always kind of wondered if so if string theory or you know any multiverse theory is true. Could these be windows? Could dreams just be 
windows for the consciousness for our conscience to see into these other uni- universes <coughs> these well, bubble universes I, I, where where maybe things happen slightly ahead or you know we're slightly behind or or I, or i mean and if it's an infinite number of multiverses then we could be years behind or years ahead or whatever. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to answer that, although maybe not the way you like. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have no the, opinion. I'm just saying. Okay. Well, when I read that kind of those kinds of uh, uh, papers that discuss that kind of stuff, it sounds like so much gobbledygook to me. And it's not because I don't understand what they're saying. It's because it doesn't really relate to my experience very well. Um, the What I think is more likely the case is that we're dealing with two different, you you might want to call it realms of existence, physical Mm -hmm. and non-physical, okay? And the natural state for non-physical existence is full knowledge of everything. Um, So, and the natural state of physical existence is limited by our senses. And our senses, for whatever reason, are limited in time. But in in the non-physical reality, it's like everything exists simultaneously. So, um, and at the same time, there is room for variation. So it's, it's like it all exists at once with subtle modifications going on constantly. Okay, so it's kind of like um, uh, when you're drawing something uh, in the early days of drawing instruction anyway, they would, they would tell you, draw the whole thing first and then add the details. So you, you draw like a, a big circle where your person is supposed to be located. And then you, you, you kind of add in, a, you sketch in where the limbs are located, and then you start adding the muscles, and then you add the eyelashes, and you add details. So I look at, the, at everything that we know in our, in our universe uh, at any given point in time and then in all time as something that has, is always present uh, from a non-physical point of view, even though at the same time people are making those smaller modifications that might change things a little mm. bit. Well, and I, and I, think I, I, I think I agree with you, and, and, and I'll, I'll say it this way, in that I've, I've got an old friend that we have, every, every four or five years we have a really intense debate over time, the possibility of time travel. And I'm like, yeah, we can time travel. Just come up with enough power to rearrange the universe into the configuration that you want to go back to. And so if you have enough power to reconstruct the state of the universe at that particular time, it's taking a snapshot in time for sure. And if you can rearrange all the molecule molecules in the universe, yeah, you can go back in time. But, but yeah, everything, everything is present at once, I think, is the point. Yeah, yeah it is. I, I would... <clears throat> I, I don't want to spend the time quibbling with you on the details of what you just said. But <laughs> I would, by the way, one thing I want to mention to you right now, just for fun, because you mentioned comic books earlier, yeah. is at least once, although I've heard this has happened several times, I think the artist John Byrne has had some precognitive uh, experiences also. And this is just because I, I used to collect comic book art and I, uh, I wanted to buy um the cover to wonder woman number i forget what it was now maybe 116 117 something like this because john byrne did this cover before princess diana had died but for the same month so the cover came out and then she died but the cover was a paste up of a newspaper that said princess diana dead okay Uh, that was literally the the uh the 
what it said on the cover. It, was like, it looked just like a newspaper headline and Princess Diana dead. Um, and then like within a week or so, she died. And I absolutely wanted to buy that cover. But the, uh, the agent I, I used to buy her and stuff from said to me, you don't want that. It's just pasted up. He, he's got no like original drawing on it. It's just <laughs> so cool. And it was like, but I didn't, so I didn't buy it. I wish I had, it would have been like $50. Oh. And, uh, oh. but anyway, um, but as far as how it works, the mechanisms, um, my feeling is that there are a lot of things that are described as separate phenomena, clairvoyance, talking mm -hmm. to spirits, uh, telekinesis, tel seeing the future, uh, telepathy, uh, probably quite a few other things I'm not thinking about, healing, whatever, okay? Right. And they're all looked at as being separate, but I look at them as all being uh, aspects of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because to me, as a spirit, it, it's telepathy is the way you communicate mm -hmm. um, and your thoughts actually create and that's how healing happens okay so everything is is like basically thought um in a spiritual state and since everything exists simultaneously it, when you're in a spirit state you can see the future it's no big deal so um so talking about these as if they're separate is almost like um saying that me talking about comics versus me talking about magazines those are two completely different distinct subjects mm -hmm. it's you know the talking about them is, is really it doesn't matter to me which one i talk about um and comics and magazines really aren't that different either they're, they're, uh, so that's how i look at a lot of this stuff the dream you had about the attack in where was it uh uh, uh germany Amsterdam oh, or Holland. You're or, talking about the muggers and the muggers. Yeah. So the dream you had about that, uh, and I'm I'm throwing the, and throwing this question out to everybody. But uh, you know, in in my experience in dreams, uh, I get in real bad situations, and I literally could be falling from a cliff, but never hit the ground, never actually die in the dream. How unusual is it to experience death in a dream do do you... well i've i have experienced it so, so I've, I've never experienced uh, death either. in a dream yeah yeah i've experienced it a couple times uh but sometimes it's i'm experiencing somebody else's death uh -huh. uh, and sometimes and, and like that one in amsterdam was my own um and in one that my wife has forbidden me from talking about <laughs> it has to do with uh a future event with me that they really want me to avoid. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. um, right. But I would, I would say it's rare, but it's not something that doesn't happen at all. Doesn't it happens. Sure. It's just very rare. Well, and obviously it, it happened, it happened for you. And, and really I was interested if uh, Trish and Rob had, 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 uh, had, I uh, never, yeah. I dreamed of other people's deaths. Yeah. Right. But yeah. Not. As far as your, your falling sensation, I, um, I tend to attribute that to, uh, one of two things. Mm -hmm. uh, in the first place, it's me trying to make sense of a viewpoint that doesn't make sense from a physical point of view. <laughs> so if I'm seeing things from uh, above, um, I, I will sometimes kind of create the idea that I'm flying or floating, whereas in reality, I'm more like just a spirit who's got this global perspective of things. Um, and if I do get the idea that I'm flying, or floating, I might get afraid that I'm going to fall, and then I will fall because my thoughts mm. create that oh, reality. Yeah. So, so my thought will actually cause the thing I'm worried about to happen. Um, so that's one way that that'll occur. But much more commonly, 
I find that just before I wake, and you might not think this is similar, but I do think it's similar, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I will feel like either I am falling or, much more likely, I am moving through an increasingly narrow and convoluted series of shapes, like tunnels or a crack mm -hmm. in the wall or something like that. And as it gets tighter and tighter and narrower and narrower and more and more impossible, I then wake up. Mm -hmm. And I feel uh -huh. that that's basically the re-entry experience of reintegrating with my body. That's my theory anyway. Or, mm. or well, and... Yeah. And, and, and I associate and, falling, by the way, with waking up, and I associate flying with waking up. In well, and I, I feel yeah, like I, on some level it's a uh, defense mechanism just to, uh, you know, avert the trauma. But but uh, but but to but to tie that all the way back around and to potentially the tag on this episode uh, to tie. Well, and I guess I just said that to tie, <laughs> to, to tie things back around to our pre-show conversation. Uh, is it is was it the dream or so when we were talking about you when we were talking about comics earlier you were talking about that you got an assignment to uh draw the uh comics adaptation of hellraiser or or yeah. at least a a a, a, a story a, for it. yeah a story in that in that setting uh, uh was 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 that dream was the dream where you died in the in the uh mugging Prior to that, and did the, is is that is that part of your aversion to that to that oh, like slasher style uh, horror? Yeah. Well, the that dream did precede uh, that as assignment, but I wouldn't say it has anything to do with that. I've never okay. liked that genre. Um, my sister, <laughs> my sister liked it, and so when I was a kid, like maybe sixteen, I remember. She really wanted me to see one of those kinds of movies. To so this is the first one I ever saw, mm -hmm. and it was uh, the Jason Halloween movies. I think is what it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was I was horrified. I, I I don't know that I even watched the whole thing. I watched part of it, and I was like, I can't stand. I can't watch this. So mm -hmm. um, that was that. No, I've always felt like that. Okay. Um, and for what it's worth, I don't know if this is meaningful to you guys or not, but just as a testament to my gentle character uh, <laughs> I've, I've been vegan since i was 18 wow. and it's, i didn't make a choice to do it i didn't think about it i didn't even know there was a word for it actually it's just that when i left home i only bought the food i liked and, it, and <laughs> i didn't realize that i was not buying meat or dairy products i just bought whatever i liked and one day i was in london and i was buying something i asked this lady behind the counter you know where to find it she said oh you're vegan and i said no i'm american <laughs> that's funny uh so i know nowadays there's all these politics associated with veganism which i think are really stupid i and uh and quite frankly it it makes me wish i, I wasn't vegan because I, I i don't want to be associated with people who are doing you know nutty things in the in the for the sake of you know signaling how virtuous they are but um but yeah the idea of i, I just never found eating animals to be particularly appealing so that's true so yeah, I've been vegan for almost forty years now, um, and uh, but that's just in my diet. I'm, How about I, I, your I, wife? She is too. Uh, no, she was for a while, but she doesn't like it. So you know, every, <laughs> every, every whenever I'm not looking, she's uh, snarking down some chicken soup. Different, <laughs> different strokes for different folks, but oh, one thing before we get started, uh, 
What what have you been involved in the comic uh, world? Because John is uh, uh, a fan, and he just went to a conference recently, and was wondering about that. Oh um, well, I've done a few things. Uh, I've done more than just comics, but uh, <laughs> yeah, my career. I started out uh, doing editorial art for magazines like Time and Newsweek and uh, oh, wow. Leisure and stuff like that. But um, I was only doing that because the comic book writer, Mark Evanier, had said, if I want to get into comics, it'd be a good idea to do editorial illustration first, so I'd get an understanding of how to meet deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> and then once I had managed to do that on the, on the tight deadlines in editorial art, I could try my hand at comics. So I got into comics in around 1991, something like that. Um, my first titles for Marvel were comics I abs I really, really did not like working on at all. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, Clive Barker's Hellraiser and Nightbreed. I, mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's like, there were horror comics when I was a kid in the 1970s that I, I liked and I still like. Um, but, but what horror turned into later was so disgusting. I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was just... This is this is totally different yeah. from like the fly with Vincent yeah. Price. It went, <laughs> Which, it know, went from it went from sus suspense and science fiction to slasher, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, it went to like sadistic stuff, and I really yeah. don't like witnessing that kind of thing. So, when I was drawing Hellraiser, uh, I had to get reference for it, and so I had to rent the movie. <laughs> so I turned the sound off, and I I fast forwarded <laughs> through this thing until I got to the characters I needed to know what they looked like. Um, Pinhead, Pinhead, like, right? <laughs> so, yep, yep, that's yep, exactly yep. right. And I, I had my my hands basically over my eyes for half the half the, the journey because I, I really didn't like looking at that stuff. Um, and Nightbreed, I wound up censoring with my art because I was mm. looking at the stuff in the script that I was supposed to draw, and I was like, "There's no way I'm drawing that." Uh, and and I, I, I drew it in a different way so that the, the stuff they wanted me to draw was hidden because I, I really didn't want to do that kind of thing. But uh, anyway, but that's what they always do with new artists. They always throw them on their low-selling horror cover. <laughs> yeah. um, so then I wound up inking some Avengers, and uh, I drew Daredevil and Deathstroke for, uh, and Teen Titans for DC. Hmm. Uh, and then the comic people know me for, the few who know me, is Harsh Realm, which became a TV series for Fox. Hmm. Um, so I did that with a guy named James Hudnall. But to be quite frank, I mean, you, you really enjoy comics, so I don't want to disappoint you. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well I, I tell you, the uh, – I'm sorry. There goes my dog. Um, uh, I tell you, the uh, – so, so after a year and a half of no comic book conventions, we finally had a, a one locally uh, here where I live, and uh, – and actually, one of my well, some of my favorite Marvel comics are the old like '70s uh, licensed comics, like Rom and Micronauts and that kind of stuff. And I actually, I actually got to does uh, does the uh, name uh, Michael Golden mean anything to you? Oh yeah, I like okay. Golden stuff quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, yep. I, I grew up in the '70s and I had a, a pretty substantial collection. In 1979, when my mother forced me to sell it, but um, <laughs> it, uh, I had, I had, you know, look, I, I had pretty much everything that was published in the 1970s, but I, but I also the collection went way back into the uh, late 30s. So I had Batman Jeez. number two, I wow. had Action number 25, I had, I had a bunch of number twos. I had Submariner number two, 
a lot of really old stuff. My favorites were the Carl Barks Donald Ducks, though, um, and they still are my favorites. So I, I lately I bought the whole Carl Barks library, so I've got everything Carl Barks ever did in uh, mm. reprint form. But I've got a number of the originals as well. Yeah, uh, Andy, Andy, you were saying that the uh, change into more slasher type uh, uh, comics was somewhat. Uh, problem as a as a uh, as a, an illustrator and not something you didn't necessarily like the same thing happens to writers as well uh -huh. i i adapted the uh script of spawn into a novel and here in the first chapter uh the main character dies and goes to hell you know <laughs> yeah uh, and I, I i i was reading that wait a minute <laughs> what am i gonna do <laughs> story actually though yeah no spawn 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 was uh was was good i haven't read it right recently but yeah that was that was a good uh todd, well, todd mcfarland yeah that's one of the few comics that is actually worth something that i refuse to buy i uh, <laughs> just to give you a sense of where my 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 demarcation line is um for collecting purposes when i lived in the netherlands I had the uh, first edition of, you know, a leather-bound edition of The Dark Knight by Frank Miller. And I had had it for a long time because I bought it when it came out. And I just started reading this story, I guess, back in maybe 2010 or something. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is in my house. I have to get rid of it. <laughs> so I, I went to a comic book convention out there. And the thing is, in Europe, uh, comic book artists and writers are treated like royalty compared to out here. Uh, and but uh, they're also very snobbish about it. They think European comics are a lot better than American ones, um, which actually I kind of agree with in, in some <laughs> cases. But the thing is, is the price for the that that particular book out here is about five hundred dollars, maybe more by now. Wow! And uh, out there, though, you know, they they couldn't give me very much for it at all. And I was like, just just take it, get it, get it out of my house. So, <laughs> Um, right. hmm. I, I wound up trading it for uh, something called Franca, which is a European comic. It's actually very good, um, but it's worth a lot less. Um, so the thing is, I have I have like two comic collections running right now. One of them is I'm trying to reconstruct the comics that my mom forced me to sell, which is <laughs> essentially theft, because she I had to pay for our move because you know she didn't have any money, so I had to pay for it by selling my collection. Um, so I want to recover those. But my other collection is just to make money with. So um, <laughs> I, look, I look for things that are mispriced, and I'll buy those and then sell them for <laughs> higher price. And I use the money to buy the comics I really want, which are from the 70s, 60s. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, yeah, um, that, that, that's funny because I had a, uh, I had a friend that uh, had a uh, uh, MBA, and uh, uh he came over one day and uh, I was digging something out of a closet and he was standing behind me and he saw all my lawn boxes and he was like, uh, Oh, now I understand. I was wondering what you invested in. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is comic books on the one hand, they, they can be a very good investment. Mm. And on the other hand, they, they aren't uh, the, sure. the, 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 neg the drawback to it is finding a seller is not as easy as with more liquid investments like mm -hmm. stocks or, or gold or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, the returns are much higher. Right. So ah. if you've got a, a line onto uh, you, you know, your collectors, people you'd sell it to, 
they work out really well, particularly nice. if you understand um, um, which comics have the highest uh, uh, cost to uh, value uh, uh, ratio differences. So like newsstand comics published after 2000, most people aren't aware that the newsstand version is worth 10 times as much as the regular edition. Sometimes mm. um, ah. So I, I target those. I buy them all over the place. But Spawn, I stay away from. Spawn, Spawn is one of those comics that actually is a good buy, and I could make money off of it, but I just won't buy it because they look so gross to me. Uh, <laughs> how about how about the Phantom? You're familiar with that? Oh, one? I love the. Yeah. yeah, you're talking about the DC character, the Phantom. Yeah, it was or, very popular in uh, France, actually. Or, oh, they have or the old book. the old news, yeah. newspaper strip. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. A, well, it was I made into a movie. I the only way I know about it is I adapted this uh, <laughs> the script of that one too. <laughs> did you did you work with a guy named Jean-Marc Lefissier when you did it? No, no okay, I just there's with a guy, Jean-Marc Le was uh, Moebius's or Jean Giraud's agent for a long time, mm-hmm. um, and he bought all these old uh, uh, intellectual properties from France, including, oh. I believe, the character you're talking about. Um, yeah. And he had me, uh, and he started up a new uh, uh, comic book publisher in France to publish those, but as new stories. So he, he hired artists and writers to make new stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and just before he introduced those lines, he uh, got me to do covers for the books that would introduce them. So I, I think I drew the character that you're talking about. I'm not sure, though. Uh, hmm. But in any event, this okay. is probably not yeah. what you want to talk about. <laughs> right? This is fascinating. Well, this is like yeah, and, and, and just, to finish the, just to finish the geek out session before we actually start the episode, uh, uh, the, it, and I tell you, that, that, the thing about this, uh, this local convention after being uh, absent from you know not being able to attend for, attend for so long, it was like they invited all the controversial figures in comic book history because I also got to meet Jim Shooter, who oh. for 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 uh, for uh, uh, for a lot is you know either a lot of people you know it's either love him or hate him. I don't think there's a middle ground, but that was definitely interesting getting to pick his brain about uh 80s uh marvel uh, running a running marvel comics in the 80s that was kind of my impression of jim shooter is that he's he's uh not been treated very fairly frankly um he he might have a a scary looking face um (laughs) but uh really nice guy really nice guy from what i at least my interaction with him was right yeah yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard anything genuine or that seems trustworthy that paints them in a bad light. Um, I have heard a lot of bad things, but mm-hmm. they're genuine, generally not very trustworthy, in my opinion. The uh, Actually, one thing, to finish up my answer to your question. So, um, I left comics just when I was starting to get good at it. So, <laughs> if, if, if you were going to look up my old stuff, you'd probably be kind of disappointed and think, ah, gee whiz, this guy's not that good. I'll have to kind of... You know, if he offers to show me any of his artwork, I'll have to kind of politely decline or just kind of... <laughs> um, but I did get very good later. And in fact, I'm doing a comic right now uh, with uh, Chuck Dixon. Um, but uh, but it's been a long time because I became an art director and I did a lot of other things um, that one way or another, they improved the quality of my art. But yeah, I was just getting good at it. And then I left to make more money in video games. Huh. Okay, awesome. All right.
Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. All right, so uh, real quick, we'll have to do it. We'll have to do another episode just for compliments. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, did you record any of that, John? Oh yeah, no, I got it. But uh, okay. but but good outtakes. But, yeah, that if, 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 if worst case scenario, uh, that's uh, that's that is absolutely a post credit scene uh, stuff. Right, so, yeah. So uh, okay.